Do you want to grow a following on Instagram? If you're active on Instagram and want more real followers and real engagement on your Instagram profile, you're going to want to check out the first link down below in the podcast description notes so you can sign up for a free Instagram growth hack training that I made. And it goes over how I grew an Instagram account to 100,000 followers and actually sold the account for a profit. So in this free training, whatever your niche is, whether it's real estate, digital marketing, content creation of any kind, or really anything else, this free Instagram training will show you everything you need to know about Instagram engagement and getting more booked appointments and actual leads all from Instagram and growing an organic following. So if you're active on Instagram and you want to grow a real following, this training will help you get there. Again, check out the first link down below in the podcast description to get this totally free Instagram training so you can grow your account organically and make more money. Let's get into the podcast. Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning into the Marketing Edge podcast with Scott Leventon. We have a special show lined up for you today. We have Kim Kasturki, uh, which is Kim is a real estate investor. She is a six-figure cash-flowing rental portfolio investor, and we're going to get into a lot about Kim's background, what she does, how she runs her business. So, without further ado, I'm going to introduce Kimberly. So, she's the founder of the W2 Landlord Community, and she has over 17 years' experience managing her rental portfolio uh, remotely. Um, so, she built the six-figure cash-flowing rental portfolio while working a full-time corporate sales job and also raising her nine-year-old daughter who is now nine, year old, nine years old and managing the rental portfolio herself. Through that experience, Kimberly has created effective processes that resulted in only one eviction during her 17 years of real estate experience. Kimberly has developed her business where in 2019 she did hire a property manager. 2020, she started a Facebook community that is active and growing for real estate investors just like herself with full-time jobs and those that want to quit their job to do real estate full-time. Um, today, Kimberly works with investors and end buyers to match them with deals and properties that are solid, sold with creative financing, rent to own, or land installment contracts. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Kim. How are you doing? Awesome. Thank you, Scott. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So we're just going to dive into everything. I did go over a little bit about your background. Um, is there anything else that you want the audience to know about you before we really dive into the meat and potatoes, um, just about maybe your personal life and how you kind of got started? Sure. So in terms of how I got started, so back in 2006, I became what I would call an accidental landlord. I I ended up purchasing a property. It was my first home, and it was actually for my primary residence. And it was really at the time that people were buying homes, you know, lending was pretty loose. You know, you didn't necessarily need all the requirements that you do today, which we saw about two years later, how that, you know, really affected people with the economic downturn of 2008. So at that time, I was uh, relocated for a job that I had to a city that was about three and a half hours away. So I also found myself about $30,000 underwater on the loan. So what I had purchased the house for was now worth about $30,000 less. So, so really selling the property was not an option. I was about 27 years old at the time and just had to kind of figure things out. And, and so that's really how I became an accidental landlord. I asked around a couple of my friends, was able to find a young couple that was looking for a rental property and I just honestly just taught myself how to self-manage that property from three and a half hours away. Now, just keep in mind, this was back in 2008, you know, 
the same technologies that we have available today aren't weren't necessarily there. It was almost unheard of for me to be uh, managing such from such a far distance. You know, usually landlords were managing, you know, from a block away or a couple miles away, like, you know, pretty much, you know, people that were landlords were investing in their hometowns. And so it it just was one of those things that I taught myself and slowly, slowly throughout the years, I added say another duplex, or I added a triplex or added another single family. And just over the years, I was able to build a cash flowing portfolio that is really supporting my lifestyle today. Yeah, that's awesome how you kind of got involved in remote investing. I do kind of want to dive into that because people that are maybe listening, they want to get into real estate, you know, they want to start their own business, but maybe the market that they're in, uh, for whatever reason, maybe it's not a good real estate market to start with. Can you go over the remote investing and kind of how you got started with remote investing and how you were able to manage, you know, your properties, uh, you know, not really being all that close to the, you know, to the property? Sure. So, so how I ended up doing it back then was if a maintenance request came up, say the tenant reached out to me and I had to, you know, fix a drippy faucet or get an HVAC guy out there. I would, I would go around, I'd make some calls and I would just start connecting and, and just making relationships with contractors. And over time, I was able to build a Rolodex of people that I trusted and they trusted me that if I called them up and sent them out, that they were going to get paid quickly and at a fair rate. And I knew that I was being charged a fair rate. So, you know, over time, it took me a while to build that up. It took me a couple of years. But again, I was able to build that up. So how I would recommend somebody doing it so that they don't, it doesn't take them a couple of years is I would really do some research on a market. I mean, there's a lot of really great uh, resources out there, biggerpockets.com, Facebook groups. If there's a specific market that you're looking into, I would just highly recommend getting on that local Facebook group, finding the real estate investment association group or real estate investors of, let's just say Memphis, Tennessee. I'm just using that as, as an example. You can go ahead and join that group and just really, you can, you can actually search your keywords through that group. So if somebody's already asked the question of who's a good handyman or who's a good plumber, you know, those questions have already been asked. You can search that and start reaching out that way, or you can connect with property managers in that group, talk to them, you know, get some insight, there's, I, I just say networking is so important these days. And because we have technology at our fingertips, it's really easy to have those conversations. It doesn't take you years <laughs> to build that uh, relationship group as it did. I did, you know, it's a lot faster of a turnaround these days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting. You mentioned Facebook groups because that's how I actually, you know, came across that, uh, you know, you were interested in being on the podcast. So I'm a big believer in Facebook groups, especially in the real estate space. There's just so many Facebook groups, pretty much for any market or even just like a small town or a small city. Um, there's basically a Facebook group, a real estate Facebook group for pretty much everything, at least for major markets. There definitely will be Facebook groups. Um, so, yeah, I'm a big believer in using Facebook groups, especially for networking. So I want to kind of move on, get back. We're going to actually backtrack a little to your early years of real estate investing and kind of how you got started. Um, so when you were getting started, you said, you know, you have been doing it. Um, for 17 years, which goes back to, you know, the 08 before the financial crisis. Um, besides like the, the obvious uh, challenges with the financial crisis in 08, uh, what were some other challenges maybe like when you first got started, whether it's 
you know, forming your LLC if you have one, or could you just go over some of the other like common challenges that you face and maybe people just getting started might face for uh, getting started with real estate? Yeah. So my biggest challenge was me personally, because I was far away being taken seriously, you know, I was just a voice on the phone and gosh, rewind back 17 years prior, you know, I was, I was young. So I think that, you know, a lot of the contractors or people at first just really didn't take me very seriously, but because I was consistent and because I kept showing up and because I paid on time and because, you know, I kept sending them work, you know, I was able to build some really good relationships that way. You know, another challenge too, is that, um, you know, at first maintenance requests seemed a little scary to me because this was something new. I was honestly holding on to the property at first just to wait to get my equity back so I could sell it. So my mind still wasn't, hey, I'm a landlord. It was more, I'm just managing this from a distance. So at first the the maintenance seemed a little bit intimidating. But honestly, what I learned is that maintenance calls usually are a lot less complex than you think they're going to be. You know, the tenant's going to call and be like, oh, this is crazy. And it's just like such a, you know, this is so bad. And, you know, I, I learned not to jump in on that same emotion, but to like really keep it to the facts, really keep it simple and to really just have a process in place. So I was able to really streamline it over the years instead of jumping in and freaking out and calling this person and that person, you know, I had the tenant text me the maintenance request. Once I received the text, the tenant already knew that they would get a response within 24 to 48 hours. Um, you know, a lot of these maintenance things weren't necessarily emergencies. A drippy faucet is not an emergency. Um, obviously a fire, a water break, things along those lines, those are emergencies. And I lay those out in my leases, but anything else beyond the emergency is handled within 24 to 48 hours. So then that gave me an opportunity to call my contractors. And then what I would do is I would have the contractor call the tenant and coordinate the, the time for the contractor to go out. That way it took me completely out of it. All I had to do was intake, intake the maintenance request, align it to the right contractor, and then the contractor did the rest. Then I would get a, a call from the contractor after they evaluated it with, with the quote, what it would entail. And a lot of times it was very simple stuff. So I would say the biggest lesson is don't let the maintenance be intimidating and also to follow a repeatable process because then when things do come on your plate, it doesn't feel so out of, it, it doesn't feel like an emergency. It just feels like you're following a process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. It seems like at least the people I've talked to and, you know, when I was getting started again, I was a loan officer, so a little bit different, but just like the the maintenance and kind of just the upkeep of like the whole you know real estate investing process um it kind of you know i'd say deterred me a little bit and maybe i had a misunderstanding about really what all goes into the maintenance but the way you explained it just now um, makes it you know seem like the maintenance again it's it's manageable and even though that's a reason that a lot of people don't get started um, i think it's a good point you brought up that you know it's really not something that should deter you um, I want to get back to when you got started. So, and you mentioned that you did work or you did work, uh, you know, a full-time corporate sales job, at least up until I think it was 2020. When you were first getting started in real estate, I'm guessing you got started part-time. Is that correct? I did. So it was, so real estate was more my side hustle and I knew that I wanted to leverage 
of real estate investments and build cash flow really for my retirement plan. Um, that this kind of evolved a few years after I purchased my first property. And then I also had just purchased a duplex. And then after seeing the cash flow come in from the duplex and that that first property, I thought, okay, you know, what I'd like to do is I'd like to build this portfolio to support me in retirement. I still wasn't necessarily thinking that I wanted to necessarily leave my corporate job. And so what I ended up, you know, the reason why I looked at it that way was because I was doing well in my corporate job and I still identified as more corporate America climbing the career ladder. And plus I had a young family at the time. And so just leaving my job wasn't really what my biggest priority was, you know, at that moment. Now, over the years, what ended up happening is as I got better at real estate investing, as I was, you know, collecting more, you know, rental properties and, and life just ended up getting a little bit busier, I just realized my mindset almost shifted from being more of, you know, the corporate person to being a real estate investor doing the corporate thing. So at a certain point, I really had to make a decision. And it, this was really for myself. I just made a decision that I wanted to do real estate investing full time. I still do active projects. You know, I'm, I'm, I have my portfolio that really supports my lifestyle, but I'm still doing active projects along the way. So um, I ended up leaving the corporate job actually very recently uh, the end of 2022. It took me about two years after I decided that I that I wanted to do real estate full time to actually prepare, hit the guideposts that I put out for myself, so that when I did finally make the move, that I was almost landing in more of a a soft landing pad, not just jumping off of a cliff and building the parachute on the way down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which is a yeah. great way to do it too, but. That's just not my, not my energetic approach. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And like when I was getting started with, uh, you know, freelance writing and I was still working my corporate job, I kind of did the same thing like that you were just describing where I built it up where I was making, you know, at least some income where when I went out on my own, like I could still support myself as I was growing the business. So I think that's really good advice. Not really, you know, it, it's not for everyone to just drop everything and dive right in especially in, you know, a field like real estate, because, you know, there is a lot of risk, obviously investing in property. So yeah, I kind of agree. You definitely, before you get into real estate, I think you should have, you know, some way of supporting yourself because just like you mentioned, and just in my experience, it can start out pretty slow. Um, now going back to like leaving your corporate job, because I feel like that's the goal of a lot of people that are probably listening. A lot of the people listening probably have a side hustle. Maybe they want to get started in real estate, um, but they have their, you know, their full-time job where they're working typically, you know, nine to five hours and it can be hard just to get started in real estate. So did you have, do you have like any advice for someone who is, you know, they have their full-time job, but they want to eventually quit and eventually do real estate full-time? Like, do you have any advice maybe on acquiring the rental properties to start or just any advice for people that want to, you know, quit their job and really get into real estate full-time? Yeah, absolutely. So what I would highly recommend is every single metro area has a real estate investment association, and they typically call them RIAs, R-E-I-A's. 
And I would say get affiliated with one of your local real estate investment groups. So that would be the first step. Then I would go onto Facebook and I would join any real estate investment groups that just appealed to me. So um, there's some really good ones out there. There's a, a rehab fix and flip one. There's, you know, you name whatever strategy you're looking to do. If you want to do landlording, buy and hold, you want to do rent to own strategies, you want to do fix and flip. There's a Facebook group for everything. Um, I even have my own Facebook group, which is for, uh, you know, real estate investors who have full-time jobs. That's the name of it. And so there's just a lot of communities out there that you can start networking. So that, that would be my first step. And then the second step, I would want to ensure like, that you want to define a strategy that works for you. So having a full-time job and utilizing real estate more as a side hustle, you're probably, or at least I was to do it all over again, you want to look at those strategies that are a little bit more passive that you're not having to put a whole lot of effort in. So fix and flip is, is very active. Wholesaling, very active. Landlording is, you know, you can hire a property manager, so that can be a little bit more passive. And then even more passive are buying a property and then actually selling it, what I call as the bank, through rent-to-own contracts, through land installment contracts. Um, as I really uh, got into real estate investing more, that's really where the game changer was for me that I finally pivoted to where I could leave my job was having a mindset more of the bank. And the reason why is you're not having to do all of the maintenance that a landlord has to do. You just hold the, the note on the property, whether you get it through financing or you, or you pay cash. Um, you know, a lot of the ones I have, I finance, so I'm not having to shell out all that cash at once and then just flip it as a rent to own. And then that tenant buyer is actually doing all the maintenance. They're treating that as their home, not as a rental. And it cuts down all of the, those maintenance strategies or not maintenance strategies, maintenance calls. So what I'm just saying, and, and I encourage you to do is find a strategy that works for you based on the time you want to put in, the level of effort you want to put in, and just really start learning and networking and engaging that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Now you did mention about like passive income and try to make things like a little bit more passive. Like how you said, you know, being a landlord is a little bit more active if you don't have, you know, a property management company. And I'm kind of, you know, trying to set up some passive revenue sources as well. Um, so just kind of going back to, you know, your early days, I want to talk about kind of switch gears and talk about like your work-life balance. Um, because a lot of people, you know, they're, they're grinding, you know, the eight, 10 hours a day and maybe they don't really have a great work-life balance. Um, so could you just get into like your work-life balance, kind of where you started, kind of where you're at now and where you see it going in the future, where, you, where you'd like it to go? Yeah, absolutely. So when I first started and I did not have processes in place, it, you know, it took a lot more effort to manage my rental properties. So it, it did, it did kind of cut into to my time, but, really quickly, I started putting processes in place and processes that, you know, I wasn't getting the phone calls in the middle of the night. I wasn't, you know, I had time to get the contractor out there to put them in touch. And I really what it is, is I had a sound process that I followed every single time. And I also set the expectation with the tenant up front. I set the expectation of how maintenance was going to be addressed. I set the expectation of what's considered an emergency and what's considered a standard maintenance request. 
And then I also set the expectation of paying rent on time. So having those conversations up at the front end, really, it, it honestly, it helped bring in the right tenants and it helped screen out the tenants that were like, ooh, you know, she's going to make me pay rent on time. I really don't want that landlord, which is a good thing, right? Because then you're not dealing with headaches down the road. So um, also too, you know, like the way I respond to maintenance, if that if that didn't jive to that future tenant, that kind of screened them out. But they were processes that I felt were very fair and allowed me to give my tenants good customer service without them expecting a callback at one in the morning if a toilet was plugged. Because you always hear tenants and toilets, you know, that's why people don't want to get into landlording. But there's processes around that. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Now you mentioned, you know, the tenant with the broken toilet, you know, those types of situations. Do you have any like tenants that, you know, just over the years were kind of like a problem and kind of, I guess where I'm going with that is if someone's just getting started in real estate investing, how do you kind of deal with a tenant, whether it's, you know, whatever the, the case may be, how do you kind of deal with a tenant where, you know, maybe they're breaking the law or just you're having just a trouble tenant? How, how do you kind of approach that? Yeah, so just to give, you know, some just rest assured to somebody that wants to get in, the problem tenants were very few and far between. So, you know, of course, you're always going to come up against it be just because that's just a part of the nature of the game, right? But they were there's so few and far between. And I think that, you know, there's ways about having very tight processes and communicating that during the application process that helps screen out some of the people that would probably want to take advantage of the landlord, right? Because really good, solid processes are really, it, it makes everybody comfortable and allows everybody to win when one party's not taking advantage of the other one in the sense, you know? So that's one way that you can kind of help screen out the problem tenants. Um, another way, too, is that if you do have somebody that it's just a little bit more of a challenge, they're breaking things, it's it's thing, you're always getting a, a service call on it. You know, I also have, um, what? I, how do I want to say this? I have rules, or not necessarily rules, but just verbiage in the lease that really lays out what I as the landlord am responsible for and what the tenant is responsible for. And what I mean by that is if a bottle cap gets thrown into the garbage disposal and it breaks the garbage disposal. Well, that's me as the landlord. Yes, I will get that fixed because that is the garbage disposal. But as the tenant throwing the bottle cap down the, you know, the garbage disposal and ruining it, they're responsible for paying for it. And yes, I've had to have uncomfortable conversations about that. But at the end of the day, it's either they pay for it or it comes out of the deposit. So those are so those are some of the things that you can kind of handle it. And you only need one bottle cap or one invoice to the tenant that it's from their damage that that really quickly stops. So mm -hmm. I would I would encourage people get into this business because it's very profitable and don't let some of the things deter you like the worry because there really are respectful ways where you as a landlord can stand in integrity and have a conversation with a tenant who's damaging your property and just really have a process in place to address that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I want to actually go back to one thing you just said that you said, like you have specific like verbiage in the lease, uh, you know, for these types of situations. 
Um, to find like those contracts and stuff, I feel like that's another reason that people kind of get hung up and not really get started is like the whole contract law uh, when it comes to real estate. I know like a website, like you mentioned before, Bigger Pockets, they have some templates of contracts. Um, but where did you kind of learn like about the contracts, you know, about contract law and kind of how, you know, especially landlord tenant relationships work? Uh, where did you kind of learn about contracts and kind of that whole side of things? Yeah, absolutely. So one place anybody can start is your state is going to have a tenant landlord handbook. Every state has their own. And I would say download that, get familiar with that, you know, so that you understand, you know, what your responsibility is as a landlord, what is the responsibility of the tenant, you know, and again, like that's, that's a handbook every state publishes. I'm in the state of Georgia, you can just go online, you can find it, your local real estate investment group, Anybody who's a landlord could help you find it. You could probably just Google it, you know, tenant landlord handbook and then your state. So I would get familiar with that. And really when it comes to contracts, you know, I'm I'm a licensed real estate now or right, licensed real estate agent right now. So I'm able to go in and use my real estate agent form for the state. And it's very, very thorough. But, you know, even when I wasn't a licensed agent, there were lots of people within the real estate investment community that were willing to share what template they used or the lease that they use. And then on top of that, there's additional stipulations. And that's really where I put just kind of a heads up of, you know, I'm their landlord and I handle normal wear and tear on the property. And anything like a hole in the wall or nails in the wall because you want to hang something up or all these other things, to me, that's that's the responsibility of the tenant to fix, and it's the responsibility of the tenant um, at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, also want to jump back to, you just said that you are an active real estate agent as well. Can you get into a little mm -hmm. bit of how it works being an investor and a real estate agent? Like, can you represent yourself? How does it work with commissions? Just like your experience in being an investor and a real estate agent at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, I'm able to represent myself on real estate transactions. And I've done that on several deals where I've been able to get money at closing because it's, you know, basically my commission that I'm able to use for improvements, renovations, you name it. And then also too, I think having my real estate license is, is extremely beneficial when I'm working with other investors you know, if I'm matching them to properties and deals, it makes it very easy to figure out the rate because, you know, the state of Georgia, for me, it's 3%. And so it's just kind of, I feel a fair transaction to, you know, to match basically investors to properties or match, you know, just different tenant buyers to, you know, investors and things like that. It's, it's very, very simple and straightforward to calculate fees. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that's an important lesson, you know, if you're interested in, you know, getting started in real estate and actually my experience with mortgages, just a little sidebar, um, being in the mortgage industry, I had to pass the NMLS exam and just being educated on all that within the mortgage industry, I think was extremely beneficial and really helped my career, you know, after I was done with mortgages and where I'm kind of going with this. And what my point is, is that even if you just like take the exam and like study to become a real estate agent. You're going to learn so much about the real estate process, how I kind of mentioned contract law. Um, that's a big part about, you know, studying for the real estate exam. 
So even if you may not want to be an agent, I think it's a good idea to at least, you know, study for the real estate exam. And then you can kind of get, um, you know, like acclimated with a lot of like real estate topics. Um, is that something you would recommend? And like, do you see people that maybe just get started, like they do take the real estate exam, like just to become familiar with a lot of real estate terms? So if, you know, in the in the lens of just getting started, I would say you do not have to have your real estate agent license, you know, when you're just getting started. Right. It's something down the road after you've gotten a couple properties, I would say, hey, if it if it vibes with you, then then do it. But in terms of the contract law and everything, the tenant handbook is really a, it's an easy read. Um, the state of Georgia, I gosh, I think it's probably about I don't know, 10, 20 pages, something along those lines, but it's going to cover everything that you need to know. And really at the end of the day, if you're operating in a, in a fair way, you know, a kind of how would I want to be treated in this situation? That's usually in line with the tenant landlord handbook. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, there are a couple things you want to put some tighter processes in place because, because again, you just, you want to have your processes in place, but again, that handbook will give you what you need to know. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So if you're listening and you want to get started, you don't need to study for the real estate agent license. And I think it's a good thing that uh, Kim said not to, because it actually does cost some money, obviously, to get the training materials. If you actually sit for the exam, that costs money also. So I think Kim is definitely right. If you're just getting started, maybe the tenant handbook is the way to go. I'm going to find a link to the tenant handbook. Obviously, you know, it differs for each state, but I'm going to find the link and I'm going to put it in the description. If you want to get started in real estate, you can check out the link below in the description. It will take you to at least some more information about the tenant handbook um, if you want to get started. So uh, on that note, it's a good segue into actually getting started with the real estate investing. Um, a lot of people, you know, if they're, you know, around my age, whatever, mid 20s, you know, maybe they graduated college a couple years ago and, you know, they might have student loans. Um, so is it possible to get started if you have student loans? Because um, I hear a lot sometimes, you know, kind of like an advertising, I don't want to say gimmick, but it's like use other people's money, like find other people's money and then use that to invest. Just kind of want to get your take, uh, Kim, on if you can get started with little money, whether you have student loans or just like limited capital, can you get started in real estate investing? Yes, there's there's a wide variety of different ways to get started in real estate investing. And so and I'm you know, I'm I'm pausing a little bit as I say it only because you've got to look at a, the function of how much time you have and how much cash you have. So if you're looking at an equation or a formula where you have, you know, a little bit of cash or no cash then you're going to want to realize that, or not want to realize, but you're going to realize that you're just going to need a little bit more time to in those strategies that require a little bit more time. So you're looking at bird dogging, you know, where a bird dog is, all you have to do is identify a deal, pass it over to somebody who's a wholesaler or an investor, and then you get a finder's fee, you know, zero money out of your pocket, but it's going to require some time to, to identify a property to pass to an investor. So that's that's one example. Wholesaling is going to require a little bit more time, maybe some of your money, but you're also going to make $20,000 profit on a wholesaling deal, right? So if you don't have any money, I would highly recommend starting with some bird dogging and some wholesaling 
and start collecting some money for a down payment. If you've done that or that's not necessarily, you know, something that's vibing with you, then I would look into seller financing. And that is going to require a little bit more of your time, but it it's going to require less money out and you don't have to really necessarily work directly with a bank. Um, seller financing is where you find an investor or you find a seller who's willing to act as the bank and they will. And then you identify terms. You define a down payment. You define how you're going to amateurize and you define how many years that loan is going to be. So so those are some ways that you can get into it with with little bit of money. If you are kind of thinking, well, I've got my W-2 and I, I do have some savings, um, even if you have student loans, you know, conventional lenders look at debt to income ratio and, and they have their formulas that they use. You, you probably could get into a conventional loan because if it's your first rental property, you only have to put, gosh, anywhere between maybe 10% down, sometimes less if it's an FHA loan and you can get approved for it. I believe the first um, rental property I purchased, I, I put, I think, 5% down. But, but things have changed over the years. So just understand your lending laws. So it's just, again, how I want to answer that question, because there's just so many different strategies. Is It's a function of how much money you have and a function of time and whatever you're willing to invest. But that is what it requires with real estate is one or the other. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Now, I want to unpack one thing that you said, and you kind of touched on wholesaling. Now, when I was just getting started in, you know, learning about real estate, I came across wholesaling and I came across, you know, people, a couple that I just remember clearly, like on TikTok or advertising on Facebook, you know, here's how I make, like you said, $20,000 per deal. Can you go over just like from a high level, what exactly is wholesaling? Because to be honest, I still don't really have a full understanding of what wholesaling is. Um, my understanding is that you don't need like a license to do it. But if you're, you know, if you are knowledgeable in it, could you just explain from a high level what exactly wholesaling is and how it kind of works? Yeah, so wholesaling is is really, you know, somebody that's out looking for off market deals. And the reason why you don't need a real estate license to be a wholesaler is because it's not listed on the multiple listing service. And that's, you need a license to list on the multiple listing service. And so wholesaling people will go and there's a wide variety of different ways. You know, if you're driving down the road and you see a dilapidated property and and you're savvy enough to figure out who the owner is. Um, a lot of wholesalers, they'll go, they'll reach directly out to that seller or that that homeowner and put that house under contract if that seller's willing to sell it. And so what they do is they'll put it under contract for a period of time, and then they immediately take that contractor and float it to a, their network of investors. So basically they say, I've got this deal under contract. Here's my Here's the purchase price. Here's the details. And... You know, if they're able to get an investor to purchase that property, then the wholesaler gets to keep the spread between what they put it under contract and what they ended up selling it to the investor for. And a lot of investors are fine making sure that the wholesaler is paid because they don't necessarily have the time to go hunt down and talk to these sellers. So the value that the wholesaler brings is they're creating the deal, they're finding the deal, and then they're passing that deal over to an investor that... Um, you know, just gets to walk into a cash flowing deal. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Like that's, 
That's the best uh, explanation of wholesaling I think I've ever heard. Um, yeah, so I mean, that makes sense to me. So it's important to know if you're listening to this and you do want to get started in real estate, but maybe you don't really want to you know, become a licensed agent. Um, it's actually like Kimberly just said, uh, wholesaling could be a good way to kind of get started. Now, um, I think I've heard something, it's called like driving for dollars in wholesaling, which is when yep. you kind of just, you know, <laughs> drive around like a neighborhood looking for these you know, distressed properties. Um, so there's a lot more into wholesaling than we kind of went over just now. So if you do want to check out wholesaling, I will leave a link to some resources about wholesaling if this is something you want to look into because um, it does take a lot of research. And like Kimberly just said, you know, you do have to bring some value to the table if you are a wholesaler. So check the link down below in the podcast description if you want to learn more about wholesaling. I do want to move on and talk about like actually, again, getting started um, in real estate investing, something that I've come across and it's a term, it's called house hacking. And house hacking is when mm -hmm. you basically buy a property. It's another word for it is like an owner occupied property. So house hacking, we're just going to call it house hacking is when you buy such a, like a property, like a duplex, um, you live in one unit and rent the other out to a tenant who pays, you know, monthly rent. And then that monthly rent either pays for your mortgage or at least reduces your mortgage payment um, each month. And just where I'm kind of going with this with uh, Kimberly, have you seen like house hacking work in your experience? And do you think that's a good way for people to get started? Yeah, definitely. Now, I, I, I shared with you and the audience that I've tried so many different strategies of real estate investing and house hacking is absolutely one of them. And what I ended up doing is I ended up putting a private apartment in my basement. So, or garden level in the state of Georgia, basements are not like, um, I used to live in Michigan. It's not like, you know, a, a cellar. It, they're basically garden levels off the garage, but kind of like bonus areas. And what I ended up doing is I took out the stairs from the garage up to the main level. So it was a hundred percent private. Um, put in a full bath, full kitchen studio, and that is paying my entire mortgage. So I really do believe in house hacking. Um, I've done it and I basically completed the, the unit April of 2021 and I haven't had one month vacancy since. So I rent that out to traveling, well, traveling nurses for a while. And then that dried up just because of the way that, you know, just it is. I don't know if just a lot of people were out doing that or whatever, but um, then I started marketing it on Zillow as a furnished long-term rental. So I have somebody there now that has um, signed a six-month lease. And then I get people from VRBO, Airbnb constantly reaching out about it. So I think that house hacking absolutely is probably the easiest way to get started. And the question that you just have to ask is, what, what do you have available to you? Do you have a basement unit that's private, separate entrance? Do you have, if it's, is it, if it's a duplex, you know, can you rent the other side? Do you have a private room somewhere that, you know, it would still be comfortable to live and coexist if you had somebody coming in Airbnb? Um, gosh, do you have, you know, room on your property that you could put an accessory dwelling unit? They call them ADUs. Could you put a tiny house on there? I mean, there's just so many cool ways that you can utilize real estate investing to pay your mortgage, to have it as a side hustle. It doesn't just have to be the standard cookie cutter things that you see on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. 
um, just just open up your mind. And there's a lot of ways that you can monetize space that you already have. Yeah, before we move on to actually scaling up the rental portfolio, I actually do want to touch on Airbnb, um, like you just mentioned. So I have a friend who moved to Philadelphia recently, and she moved from, I believe it was Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And she basically did an Airbnb and it like more than paid for her entire rent. Um, but then I did come across something called Airbnb arbitrage. And I think Airbnb arbitrage, at least my understanding is when you basically, you rent out a lot of properties on Airbnb that you don't really own, I think, and you kind of just collect the money. Now you're not breaking any of the rules of Airbnb, but I think again, Airbnb arbitrage, at least my understanding is that you just kind of rent a lot of properties and you kind of just build up that portfolio. Um, can you just touch on a little bit about like Airbnb investing? If you've seen, you know, Airbnb arbitrage and kind of like, is Airbnb a good way to get started in real estate investing? It, it is. And it's just, again, that's another low cost way for somebody to get started. So really the costs up front on that is, and really where I would recommend you look is more on Zillow, you know, try to find a landlord that's, that wants to rent something long-term because again, you're going to get more of that market landlord long-term rate. And what you do is you pay your deposit. You have access, obviously tell the landlord what you're planning on doing, make sure they're okay with it. And then the way that the arbitrage works is then, you know, you would furnish it, you market it on Airbnb, VRBO, and then you're able to keep the spread. And I actually have a friend who's doing that right now. Um, and the way that, that I was able to meet this couple was because um, in one of the rental properties that I purchased just recently, it's more near like kind of a, like the downtown Marietta, Georgia area. And I was, what I was doing is I renovated the basement, did the same thing that I did to my own house, took out the stairs, made a duplex out of this property. So I furnished the upstairs, I furnished the downstairs, and I just didn't want to do the management of Airbnb. So the moral of the story is I put it out on Zillow as a long-term rent. And here came, you know, this husband-wife couple who are doing Airbnb arbitrage. And I was able to get what I wanted from it they took over and yes, they are making a profit and I'm, and I'm happy for them. But again, as the long-term landlord on there, I'm getting what I need and what I want. And they're able to get the profit without having to buy the property. So I think that rental arbitrage is a really great strategy for those that want to get started and don't have a lot of money to put down initially. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and then, yeah, we're going to switch gears. So at this point, you know, we would hope uh, that people that, you know, they have gotten started real estate investing, uh, maybe they've gotten some rental properties under their belt, maybe they're actively managing everything themselves. Um, how did you get into actually scaling up your business? Because um, like you said, you know, 17 years in real estate and real estate investing, how did you know when it was time to scale up and what was your process in actually scaling up your real estate business? Yeah, I just, I looked at what my goals were, what I wanted to bring in each month to just live the lifestyle I wanted to live. And so that number is going to be different for everybody. Um, you know, I just had to take a look, an honest look at if I wasn't, if I was living the life the way I wanted to live it, where, you know, I wasn't cutting certain things out that I could just kind of, you know, live freely, you know, what is that number? And then I figured that number out. 
And then I went and chose strategies that would help me hit that number. And so as you can see, I've tried a lot of things. I've done a lot of things. And really at the end of the day, what I personally have settled on are the strategies that require the least amount of time and the least amount of maintenance. And so um, that's really what's helped me get to my personal financial independence number. And even today, I mean, even though my portfolio cash flows and I'm, I'm happy with it, I'm still out doing active projects and still out, you know, still doing things. So even if you decided to scale up to whatever number you, per, you know, personally need and you'd end up retiring from your W-2 or your job, you know, you're still keep in mind that there's probably some active things that you're still going to want to do. It's not just a everything's done, even though you've scaled or everything's done, even though you've hit your, you know, financial independence number. Mm -hmm. Right now. Yeah, that makes sense about scaling up in your kind of process. Now, obviously, this podcast is a great resource and um, there are a lot of resources out there. But for someone just getting started in like scaling, um, are there any resources that you would mention, like any online publications? Like, would you recommend Bigger Pockets as one um, to kind of get to learn how to scale your business? Yeah, so I love Bigger Pockets. I think you can even take it a step further and just go to your local real estate investment associations. You know, the, the people there have already scaled or they're in the process of scaling, and everybody's definition of scale is different. So you're, you're going to want to align with somebody who's doing what you want to be doing and kind of living the life you want to live and then just see how they did it. And I, I know real estate investors who they scale up to hundreds and hundreds of units and that is like their best life. And then I know real estate investors that have scaled up to the point that they're like, hey, I'm good and this is my best life. You know, maybe they pay off all their mortgages and they're living debt free and have their cash flow coming in each month. So you really want to define how you want like what what is success to you and then go local to go find those people and just network the crap out of that. You know, just network, network, network. And I think um, physically seeing somebody sitting right in front of you doing what you're doing is the biggest motivator and and the best way to level up yeah now you mentioned like some resources uh like the the real estate investment association um it could be a good resource i want to talk a little bit about like technology in real estate and because like in my industry with search engine optimization there are a lot of software tools that i use that i honestly couldn't do business without are there any tools that you use in your daily life, whether it's Zillow, that could be one, any other like online software tools that you use, you know, frequently that make your job as an investor easier? Yeah, absolutely. So definitely Zillow.com. I use um, the Zillow platform to search for properties. I look, I, I use it all the time. I also use their rental manager to manage the properties that I don't have a property manager for. So that's another tool that I use is their rental manager. And then I use a tool when I'm actually seeking and doing research on maybe different markets that I wanna go into, or someone's like, hey, I've got this great deal and it's over here in Florida. I'll use a, um, a website called Neighborhood Scout and it's all free. They do have a paid version that I've never used, I've never needed to use. Um, everything that I look for that I need to see for my back of the napkin analysis is all there in the free version. 
So neighborhood scout is good. Um, definitely a hundred percent, you know, you have to have some sort of video call conferencing tool. I use zoom. I'm looking into Streamyard right now. That's one. And then I would say you're going to want to have a Calendly link. Uh, you can get a free option there. Um, I, I pay for it just because, you know, I, I have multiple different meeting types, but you're going to want something along those lines. And then, gosh, what else? Oh, DocuSign. I, you want to have an electronic signing tool. So I use DocuSign. And then I get a lot of questions from people about screening tenants. And I use, there's two different sites I use. Um, I started out using, at first, TransUnion has a mysmartmove.com. You can use that. But then also Zillow Rental Manager has a really good tool as well for screening tenants. So again, um, God, I could probably go on for a while, but I think we covered a good a good bit of the of the real estate business and those tools right there. Yeah, for sure. I think it's good that you mentioned um, like StreamYard. I actually did give StreamYard a try um, and I actually stopped using StreamYard for some reason. And I'm not sure if it was just the quality of like my my uh, camera, but for some reason the StreamYard, it, my camera and my image on StreamYard, it didn't look very good. So I actually um, saw a video by Pat Flynn, who is the creator of Smart Passive Income. And he recommended oh, yeah. uh, Squadcast, which is actually what we're using now. And I'm really happy with it. Um, so just something to consider. I have heard good things about StreamYard. I'm not sure if it was just my camera quality, but um, didn't uh, I didn't stick with StreamYard. So uh, long story short, there are a lot of different, um, especially streaming platforms. Now, one other platform that I use, it's called Kartra. And Kartra is a relatively new platform. And it's kind of like an all-in-one CRM because you can do your email marketing. Um, you can collect leads, you can create lead magnets. So if you're, you know, getting into real estate investing and you want to, you know, really start on the creating content side of things, um, you're going to want to at least look into Kartra because it lets you make landing pages where you can capture people's emails, you know, if you're doing a lead magnet and there's just a lot of other features with Kartra. So that's just one thing that I wanted to uh, recommend. Um, and then like Kimberly said, like DocuSign, you will need something like DocuSign. Um, I use PandaDoc, so there are a lot of different options as far as you know getting documents signed. Um, but other than that, other than that, I think all the the tools that Kimberly mentioned, especially Calendly, uh, you're gonna need some way to keep track of you know your calendar, whether it's appointments. Um, so you're definitely gonna need something like Calendly. And so that's just good for anyone getting started in real estate investing. Those are just some preliminary tools that you probably will need if you want to, you know, really scale up your business. Now we're going to switch gears again. And I want to go into kind of like where the real estate investing market is right now and kind of where you see Kimberly, where you see it kind of going, because, um, you know, there have been rate hikes over the last two years. Um, because when I started in mortgages in 2020, you know, rates were at two and a quarter, two and a half percent. Um, so obviously it's much different now. So my question to you, Kimberly, is uh, where where is the real estate investing market now and where do you kind of see it going, you know, one year, two years, three, three years from now? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's definitely a question that a lot of real estate investors are having in terms of what's next, you know, what's what are the new opportunities so I think, you know, the biggest thing that I can recommend is, you know, don't look at the past of what worked, start looking into the future of what, of where the opportunities are and where I see those being is in really more taking on transactions or deals 
where you're the bank. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can talk with sellers and negotiate deals with sellers directly and then flip those contracts and sell them rent to own or a land contract deal or contract for deed. You can also do that if you can get a conventional loan, even with the rates the way they are, you can still make profit on your cash flow and profit on the back end of the deal that way as well. And what I like about this type of deal is it eliminates the maintenance. So you're making cash flow, you don't have to do maintenance, and it's a little bit more passive while we kind of figure out where where the market's going. Um, again, you know, I can't necessarily predict the future, but you know, I know a lot of people are saying, oh, there's gonna be a huge crash, and, and you just never know. I don't think so. I think what it's gonna be is the deals are gonna be done a little differently. I think contracts and deals are gonna be done a little bit more direct to the seller rather than through big banks, you know, with um, seller financing and things along those lines. So I would highly recommend doing some research on that, what that means. Um, we can't really get into all of the details in this podcast, but just watch some YouTube videos, do some research, really understand it, because I think you're going to be seeing a lot of that in the next couple of months or the next few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned about you know, educating yourself, watching YouTube videos, doing, you know, keeping up with a lot of the resources that Kimberly mentioned in this podcast. So I think it's really good that we covered a lot and Kimberly gave some really good insight about how she kind of got started um, in her career. So we're actually going to wrap things up. Um, Kimberly, where can people find you? You know, if they want to do business with you, whether it's in the Georgia area or if they just want to connect with you online, uh, where can people find you? Where can they connect with you? Absolutely. So they can go to the w2landlord.com and there's a lot of resources, the, the Facebook group that I run, um, you know, just different programs that they can get into. And then also too, if the seller financing concept is interesting to you, you know, I, I work with a team of people all across the country that um, can actually facilitate matching, you know, the right property to the right investor. So if it's something that you're interested in, you know, feel free. There's a form on my website to go in and fill out and we can definitely have a conversation of what you're looking for, what your cash flow needs are and see if we can find, you know, the right property and setup that that is a good fit. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kimberly, for coming on the podcast. All the tools that we mentioned are going to be linked in the show notes in the description down below. So once again, thank you so much, Kimberly, and we will see everyone on the next episode of the podcast. Take care. Thank you, Scott. Bye.